Welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where we talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. I'm Glenn Roy. And I'm Lanville. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. <laughs> I feel like you need coming for the bottoms of the <laughs> I was a little slow. <laughs> How you been? How you been? It is a COVID manage. I have been, you know, funny enough, I I just messaged my best friend and I was just like, um, the only the only thing to do now is really stay home. My cupboard is stocked. Uh, my fridge is stocked. So now the only best thing, and because we can work from home, the only best thing now is to stay home. <laughs> Child, I mean, it's such a drag because you see, I like when, especially for us and how we work, I love when we're able to come together and bounce, you know, ideas and share space with each other. But that's 723, they almost say. It very, it very frightening. And so I just saw wait for them to say, you can apply for your joke. I'm gonna go and get my joke. I'm gonna, and then once we get the second joke, we keep it pushing from there. That is what I waited for. for. And I know, say, I is not no priority group, so I have a long wait ahead of me. So I go just there my yard and order eat everything as best as I can. You can order in a man, but order in in two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which platform set up for that one, but um, yeah. It's kind of grander. So, I mean, COVID aside, though, I mean, this week has been, you know, work stressful, but my manage, you know, my family. These days, I'm telling my bed. It's when things start stressing me, I just got my bed. Yeah, I just get up and I go, I laugh at my life and go on my bed. One day, six o'clock, I get up and go on my bed because it's not the time for the foolishness. And I wake up and everything all right after. So that is my strategy these days because I don't have the energy. I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. So, so true. So, since I, so, I want to start a little train with you. Right, because we used to have like when Cornell was on the podcast, he's checking from prosperity, babe. But when I have a name for your baby, yet I go mix everything for the podcast, and when I go find him, I want to start doing the day check in. But okay, <laughs> okay, but that's pretty <laughs> fine, no, kind already. Mm, that's true. <laughs> In fact, green roof day, we can't call it that. <laughs> There's no, it's no longer um, Yeti, but it's, it's green roof or um, no, no, because Yeti is for the office. Green roof okay. day, I'm a vibe. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> you can't introduce the topic before we carry on. <laughs> okay. Um, so today, I'm very excited um, for this topic. For a number of reasons, um, I remember when I was doing majority of the papers that I would have done 
for my master's in public health and health promotion were focused on um, MSM and HIV. And when I started my paper and my dissertation, and I was redoing the literature review, I realized that a lot of the literature focused on risk compensation, they focused on um, condomless sex and that um, not provided with PrEP, gay men um, will have risky sex. But none of them really acknowledge desire and pleasure in that said condomless sex. Um, so today we're joined by a Jamaican-born uh, relationship counselor and psychosexual therapist. Um, he now practices and lives in Atlanta, Mr. Marshall Hunt. And he will be discussing Riding Raw, the appeal of Condomless sex, beer back in, all them things there. <laughs> Welcome, Marshall. <laughs> oh, hey, guys. I'm so happy to be here with you. Just listening to you guys going back and forth is exciting on its own. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. As I, I said before, I love to make sermon from this because I like certain things. And uh, I mean... Given how oftentimes LGBT advocacy and HIV-related advocacy kind of is married in a kind of way, you become wedded to certain conversations of, you know, use a condom every time and we reduce our sexual experiences to a diatribe of, oh, we always need to have sex with a condom and stuff like that. And we should be promoting safe sex and we should be giving people the tools and knowledge and information so that they can manage risk. But I feel like especially now with PrEP, especially now with the explosion of OnlyFans, we need to start diversifying that conversation to kind of find new ways to connect with people and find out how people are managing the different situations that they're in. So, yeah, meet you before my fractal and start the things on the podcast today, today, right? So... Doesn't know when, 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 when I'm too- Listen, I'm, 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 I'm here for all of it. So you're, you're absolutely right. I think... Yeah, unfortunately, since the, the 90s, um, sex, particularly for gay men, particularly for black gay men, has always been, you know, kind of wrapped in HIV prevention, you know. Um, and I think what happened in 1996 in, in sort of like 2013, um, when, when, when PrEP came out, you know, as they were getting the FDA approval, it kind of showed for the first time since the 80s that we could actually breathe and have sex as gay men without worrying about HIV, which for many, many years, that's how it was. You know, we were all, we were crippled in a way with the thought of, oh my God, I like this person. I don't know him. I'm going to have sex with them, but oh, there's HIV. Um, you know, so that was sort of like an undercurrent in all our, our experiences. And what PrEP did, it, it, it kind of lifted that cloud. Um, for a lot of gay men, I know when I um, when I first moved to the states, which was almost seven years ago, I worked in clinical research looking at uh, you know and and like um, Ben said earlier, you know my my area of expertise is psychosexual therapy, but that's rooted in clinical research. I think the great thing about therapy and psychology is that there's always an evidence based you know kind of mechanism for it. So I really wanted to explore what that meant for men's sexuality, particularly for black gay men who identify as gay, bisexual, or any other in between that isn't 
heterosexual. So I really wanted to explore what the, the psychosexual aspect of it was and not just think about the social or, you know, medicine, you know, kind of what was going on with the medical field mm-hmm. only. So I looked at men's mentality around sex. Like, what were we thinking prior to PrEP? And now that we have PrEP, what did that do? And there were five points that came out from that research. And the one of the main ones for me was just this idea that it gave men a relief. It made them think for the first time I can actually have sex and not have to worry about HIV. Um, you know, and, 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 and I think, you know, straight people don't worry about, you know, raw sex in the way that, that gay men do. You know, they will fuck whomever they want, whenever they want. And it's not a thing where they, they, they do think about, some of them think about pregnancy and, you know, and childbirth, but they don't think about HIV. Um, you know, but gay men, because of the history of HIV, we've had to think about that. And that's crippled our sexuality. Um, you mentioned, Glenroy, this idea of, of, of OnlyFans being something that is widely used and, um, and consumed in our world, particularly with, with social media. And I think that has shown us, if anything, that people don't want to use condoms. Condom sales have gone down, in, in, in particularly in America and, and in the UK. I'm not sure about Jamaica or, or other parts of the world, but, um, you know, people don't, it's not natural to use a condom. Um, it's much more natural to be, you know, to be intimate with someone. And, uh, and another thing that came out from the research is that, you know, people want to feel close to one another when they have sex. They're having sex for intimacy, um, you know, and and part of the intimacy gets taken away when you have to use a, a barrier method such as condoms. So I think now that we have alternatives to to protecting ourselves, um, you know, and I always say condom use isn't the only thing that you can use to protect yourself. Negotiation is one of the main behavioral strategies for protection, um, you know, which we don't teach people how to negotiate safer sex. We tell them you either don't do it or use a condom. And those two extremes doesn't work for most people. It doesn't compute in our brain. Um, you know, so I think negotiation is one way of, of reducing health risk, particularly around HIV and STIs. But, you know, condom use has declined because people are realizing actually HIV isn't a dead sentence anymore, for one. Um, and, and for two, it feels so much better without it. You know, if you're in the throes of the moment and, you know, you just roll over in the middle of the night, you want to stick something in, you know, you don't want to get out of bed to turn the light on, to find a condom, to find lube. You just want to put some spit on your fingers, push it in and keep it moving. So... <laughs> <laughs> Not the spit. <laughs> I mean, it's, the, it's, a, it's easy access. <laughs> you know? And mind you, I have to say that doesn't work for everyone. If you're super tight, then spit is not what you want to be using. Well, Let me just say that from public health and, and, and pleasure perspective. Um, but I think, I think, you know, it's just so much more natural to have condomless sex. And I think we need to have these conversations to let people not be shamed or feel guilty into not wanting to use a condom um, or to feel somehow that they're being less, you know, less of a human being um, because they want to feel the same pleasure that others feel. Yeah. Um, one, yeah. Before you jump in, um, 
land, but I wanted to kind of explore this a little bit because um, I was saying it, and I'm glad you brought up the heterosexual point because I, I always say it like this, for, for there to be a baby, you can't have a condom. Mm. And so right. most heterosexuals... Or you can have a condom that's split. Yeah, true. But Oops. After that, not... Right. They're my fucker. And so right. heterosexuals, there is a conversation about getting to a point where you won't be using condoms with a particular person. And I feel like um, we should be able to have that kind of space mm. and conversation that, okay... A lot of people are trying to get to the stage where in their relationships, where, as Jiren will say, they develop their risk profile and they decide with this particular person or one or two people, I will not be using condoms with them. But maybe with these other five people, I might be using condoms with them. And I right. it, it, it adds a certain level of nuance to the conversation and realism to the conversation because sex is not mechanical. So me personally, I like calm. Right? I don't mm-hmm. give a safe. I like the good stuff, right? And so the condom I'll take the come away from me. So right. within a sexual context, I am going to be finding a way to get to a point where I can enjoy come play. Um, and that means that at some point, depending on whom I have sex with, there won't be a condom because right. that's what I like. And so I think. The kind of the messaging for someone like me has to recognize the validity in me wanting that rather than just kind of stigmatizing and demonizing it. But then again, maybe go off in our next trade about how we shame our folk. But when I start Right. <laughs> right, right, right. And 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 that's that's all over the world. I think anyone who enjoys um, sex with same-sex genders have been forced to feel shameful about it. You know, that's what the Bible teaches for the most part, or that's what, at least that's what the preachers interpret the Bible to teach. Um, you know, that's what most of our parents have told us. That's what we hear in our in the school playground. That's what we hear on the radio. That's what we hear in our social media and our social settings is that gay sex is bad sex. Gay sex is shameful sex. Gay sex is, you know, ungodly. You know, you should feel guilty about it. Yes, I know you're having fun, but, you know, that you know that's not right. Um, you know, so we're conditioned into feeling shameful. We're conditioned into feeling guilty. We're conditioned into hiding it, um, hiding our pleasures, hiding, you know, what we really like. I love what you said, Glenroy. You like cum. Lots of people like cum. Um, you know, but it's it's almost like how how where do you admit that? Who do you say that to? You know, how do you talk about it without looking feeling like a slut of the group? Um, you know, so <laughs> I'm a poor card carrying Miranda off many of my friendship group. Okay, okay, and you you hold that proudly. Proudly. <laughs> um, but you know, I think you've obviously got to a point where you've been able to own your sexuality in a way that most men don't, Um, you know, and that's when we have conversations about sex, we have to recognize where everyone is in their journey. And not everyone is where you are right now. Not everyone is where I am right now. Um, So we have to give allowances for those spaces for people to be able to grow into their actualization, to be able to grow into their self-worth and self-value and to actually work their way into feeling and believing 
that the kind of sex they want to enjoy is validated. I wanted to, to add, well, two things. Um, one of them um, being that because um, HIV prevention um, interventions do um, are, are to be blamed for, for um, their messaging in some parts, right? But we can acknowledge that the stigma regarding um, raw sex or bareback sex exists a lot within the LGBT community. Um, you get looked down um, on for wanting um, to have um, raw sex, right? Especially if you're a bottom. <laughs> I mean, I think it's still more it's still it's still more acceptable to want raw sex being the insertive partner than wanting to want raw sex if you're the receptive partner. And I noticed that a lot in my work as well. So you're absolutely right, Lambell. There is, there is double standards in lots of ways when it comes to that. Because I remember, well, in doing my research, like a lot of participants would have spoken about um, not engaging in um sex with a condom um and for they would highlight some of the things the desire i know one of them in particular spoke about once he sees the condom going on he has lost all any any desire he had for that sex he's totally um lost that and i feel a lot of um interventions that target um gay men i mean who have sex with men kind of don't acknowledge the link between desire and pleasure. We focus a lot on, okay, these men are having risky sex, so let's tackle the sexual behavior mm -hmm. and not the reasons behind them wanting to engage in, 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 in condomless sex. And then the interventions that really and truly includes um, their need for desire and pleasure, but also for them in cases to do it in safe ways. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, but before you even jump in, but also that risk in and of itself has its own levels of pleasure, right? Pleasure doesn't exist on one spectrum and risk on the other spectrum, and then the two never meet. That there is, in many ways, so if you think about, I'm going to put myself out there again. Somebody take this natural BDSM test, I'm going to tell it to your land, but I need to take it. It tell you things, you know, but it's like it. And it determines what 67% exhibition is. Me, the exhibitionist look a bit... They never need a test for that, Glenn Ryan. We can tell that from, from talking to you for 10 minutes. <laughs> I don't know how about that. But we <laughs> So, there's a certain pleasure in, in, in liking certainty, just like, oh, someone will like get choked. And there's a risk in that. Risk comes with a certain level of pleasure. And so, also, it's how do we, I think we have not yet learned in the response um, to own the risk while, while teaching people to be safe. It's not, we've dichotomized mm. it in such a way where it's one or the other. It's either you kill this or you don't kill this, right? Right. You need to decide to kill this. What then? Right, right, right. So it's, it's, it's either you're going to be, you know, risky and, you know, enjoy yourself or you're going to be safe and not enjoy yourself kind of thing. And it's like, there has to be a way you can do both because like you said, Glenmore, I think it's really, really important to highlight that. Um, we're multifaceted and multidimensional in so, way, so many ways 
that you can actually get a lot of pleasure from risk taking. Um, you know, and I think most people will identify that even outside of the sexual realm, there is a sense that somehow, you know, doing something that you know isn't really right adds a little certain genus acquired to the experience. Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you take, for example, I work with a lot of people who, um, you know, who have fetishes, um, you know, one who's, you know, some fetishes and maybe having public sex, going to a park, for example, going to, you know, a bathhouse, going to, you know, public restrooms, that kind of sex. It is risky, but it also adds pleasure that you wouldn't necessarily get if you're in your own bed every single night having sex with this one partner that you see every day. Um, and it heightens the pleasure. And we are, as humans, we thrive on having pleasure. That's part of our human dynamic. It's part of what makes us different from other species is that pleasure really kind of encompasses our psychology. So to take that away from sex and say, this is the only way you can stay safe, um, by not experiencing the pleasures that you like, then it's problematic on a much bigger scale um, in terms of our mental health. Um, so I think we have to be able to look at both sides of the pendulum and think about how we can talk about safer sex practices, talk about pleasure, talk about you know engagement um, without demeaning certain forms of pleasure that people might have. And as well, something you spoke about risk. Um, I think a lot of a lot of things that I would have read. Well, I don't think it's 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 popular um, among um, black gay men. Um, for a lot of white gay men, they engage in what is called um, bug chasing and um, gift giving. Um, mm. And for them, that is the, the risk um, involved with doing that. Wait, what that, what that meant? For the, for the viewers and me. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. The viewers and the listeners. Um. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so it's it's so it's into one of so bug bug chasing is intentionally wanting to be infected with HIV and gift giving is intentionally infecting somebody with HIV. Yeah. So, so it's popular among white, among white gay men. A lot of a lot of them engage in bug chasing and gift giving. That was that was very popular in in two thousands, like the early two thousand. That was a, a, it was a phenomenon. And working in the medical field in London, um, we 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 interviewed a lot of people. That was there was almost like a subculture of that going on in the UK at the time. Um, I don't see it so much now. I don't see it as sort of like a subculture anymore. Of course, there's some people who believe, you know, as a black, and this was prior to PrEP. So I think things are very different now that we have PrEP and it's so widely available. I don't know how, how available that is in Jamaica, but definitely in the UK and in, in the US, you know, pretty much everyone who wants it can have it. There's still some issues about access and we can talk about that in another conversation. But as far as rollout, there is an availability of that. Prior to PrEP being so widely available, um, still not widely used, but widely available, there was a sense that as a gay man, you were going to get HIV anyway. 
So why not just get it over and done with and start enjoying your life and living in this world of fear? Oh, when am I going to get it? Who am I going to get it from? So it almost like it, it was, again, six thoughts in the mind, you know, and in their consciousness, they were thinking, I want to enjoy my safe life. I don't want to feel that sense of, oh my God, is this the time I'm going to get it? So why don't I just put myself out there, just get it over and done with, and then I can carry on. So that was that was the kind of psychology behind the bug chasing and the gift giving when I did my research on that. I don't know if you find the same thing, Lambell. Um, but that was a lot that was going on at that time. And there are still some people who feel like that, who feel like, you know, if I'm going to get it, I want to get it from this particular person, you know, or um, if I'm going to give it, I want to give it to this particular person. So they always remember me as a person who infected them or the person I got infected by. So, and, and there was a lot of mental health issues that were wrapped up into that. Um, but I think it's really, really important now that people recognize that condom use is not the only way you can prevent HIV and STIs. There are other prevention strategies. You know, there are, you know, I talk about prevention strategies in lots of my, my workshops and, and meetings. And I think people don't know that you can actually prevent HIV if you have a system of pulling out um, before you ejaculate, um, you know, even if you are HIV positive, you know, being on medication, if you're undetectable, it makes it virtually impossible to transmit HIV if you're undetectable. Now, there's issues with that because people think they're undetectable when they're not. Um, you know, if the last time you went and got your blood work done was a year ago, you don't know that you're still undetectable today. Um, you know, so... There, there are some, some nuances and some issues with that, which I like to talk about because I don't think it's, oh, you're undetectable that one time, that last time you went to your doctor, it means you're undetectable. No, things change. Um, so you want to make sure that you're up to date with all your, your medicines, but you're also up to date with all your, your, um, your, your, your blood draws and all of those things. So, you know, um, obviously PrEP is available in some cases more available than others. What's interesting about PrEP is the people who are most highly at high risk of, of, of HIV infections are the people who are taking PrEP the least. Um, you know, and that comes down to our social capital that we have within the Black community, comes down to our sense of guilt and shame around sex. It comes down to our social networks. It comes down to our friends not accepting our family and also education. So there are all these issues, which are kind of like social issues that we see across the board, even with COVID right now. The people who are mostly dying of COVID are the people who are least likely to get the, the, the vaccine. So, you know, those kinds of issues come up a lot, not just in, in, in sexual, sexual health. Um, but I think it's really, really important to talk to people about, you know, prep use, but also talk to people about negotiation. Um, having conversations about what you like sexually and then having techniques that you can use whether you have access to condoms or PrEP or not. Well, even with PrEP though, there, there's, there, there's a lot of issues that I think, and even now in Jamaica, because I know the ministry um, through um, JASL did a, a PrEP pilot study and we now um, offer PrEP in Jamaica. But I think there's a lot of issue regarding PrEP that we haven't kind of sat down and kind of discussed and said, all right, cool, how do we deal with these things? Because um, 
gay men's have labeled prep as you know the Travada whores. So you don't mm. need to be on prep if you're not promiscuous. They've they've labeled the, the, the pill as being a promiscuous um pill, right? There are also gay men who feel like they're comfortable with, with condom. They can negotiate um condom use so they don't need um prep. Um and then the whole issue of okay, you you suggesting prep to your partner, your partner um thinks why why if you're in a committed relationship would you um want to use prep? Does that mean that you're stepping out of the relationship? Um I remember a participant I interviewed for my study um said that he works at a clinic and he said that their the partner, one of the partner, the partner has um so they're in a steroid discardant relationship. So one mm-hmm. has one doesn't. And he was saying that he has to take PrEP, the one that's HIV negative, has to, that PrEP is a selfish drug in that he now has to take PrEP for the rest of his life because his partner stepped out um, mm. and not necessarily because he wanted to take PrEP. So there are a lot of issues regarding PrEP and PrEP yeah. that we have yeah. explored. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And, and for a long time, that was the stigma that was attached to prep use it's like you only take it if you're being promiscuous um you know and again this idea of when i tell you that sex starts in the mind what do you feel about sex um what do you feel about your partner if you're saying that prep means that someone's stepping out on on you then that means you're leaving yourself to you're trusting that person and, and trusting and believing what they say you are putting yourself at risk how much risk do you want to take to be in a relationship um, you know, the guy you talked about, um, Van Bell, who's taking prep because his partner is positive, he could decide that he doesn't want to be in that relationship anymore. So it's a choice. We all make different decisions about what we want. It's about how much capacity do you have for being in this relationship? And if you do want to continue this relationship, then one of the consequences is, you know, protecting yourself. Now, would you say protecting yourself is a consequence or would you say that's a, a healthy choice? I would say that's a healthy choice, but it's about social conditioning and about how you see yourself mentally. Um, and I like the other thing you said about people wanting to have conversations about safer sex practices. Some people don't have that negotiation skills and they think that because they're in a quote unquote, committed relationship, then that is protecting them. Now we know every, lots of people, gay, straight, black, white, pink or green, they say they're in a monogamous relationship. They think they're in a monogamous relationship, but we know that that doesn't, isn't always the case, especially in Jamaica. How many people we know who are married with children, but they still want to have a little bit of a bum fun on the side? They still want to go and have a little anal play, you know, <laughs> you know, and they don't want to identify, <laughs> you know, with a label that's associated negatively with, with, with sexuality. So, you know, we know that monogamy isn't, it, it's never been in the Jamaican culture, monogamy. It's not something that works well with Jamaican men and some Jamaican women. It doesn't matter what they say. We know the reality of it. So, We need to begin to have those conversations, not just around prep, but around the reality of life. You can tell yourself all day that, you know, you're being faithful and your husband or partner is being faithful. But how true is that? 
or do you just want to continue living in the fantasy land that you're living in? That must be a difficult conversation. Can you imagine yeah, you're a good, good man, that's a girl, well, <laughs> I might have given one so older people <laughs> um, I want to step back because I mean the other side of um, perp use I mean we've been centering perp in a conversation a lot because it has you know been at the center of people being able to as you said have a certain sense of relief around being able to have sex in the way that they want um, but there are other um, STIs and um, I know that some research has shown that, you know, other STIs go up with um, perpuse mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the, the prevalence goes up with, and incidence goes up with, with perpuse. And so, I mean, the, the government messaging is that perp is a combination method of prevention. Everybody knows how to really that they happen. But and that, that's coming from the government? Yeah, they must say they're supposed to use perp and condom. That's what they're saying. And that nobody are gonna do. But I never tell the people um, and, and, and and is prep widely available to anyone who wants it, or is it just to a specific target group? Target, I think for now it's target groups. Okay. Right. And but no, so I wonder though, how do we then respond to that other piece of it, which is that um Prep is, a, prep is not a, just a drug that you take. It's a, it's a, it's a set of decisions. It's a, it's, it represents a series of decisions that you've been making about taking control of your sexual health because you're not just taking a drug. You're managing your sexual health broadly by the decision to take this drug. And you're going to have to be consistent with your blood work, um, not just for sexual health um, related reasons, but also you need to do your, your kidney functioning, your liver function to do that kind of check to do the kind of checks to make sure mm-hmm. you're not having adverse effects. Um, I think, um, or rather, I don't know the extent to which the conversation around PrEP is representing PrEP as um, it's not a magic drug is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if we're, I don't know if in the current in the current dispensation we're having the conversation, but I don't know if in the dispensation of the liberated gay man we're having that conversation either. So maybe maybe from where you sit, you see more of the other side. Yeah. So I I, I feel that, and and for anyone who's who's listening to our conversation right now, I feel like we have to have broader conversations. Um, I think for so many of us, we have these siloed conversations about sex, about um, safe, safer sex practices, about condom use, about religion. But what we're not having is a conversation about it all together as, as one whole. Um, and what I find is that people will deflect from having safer sex conversation if they're satisfied in their life that they're doing all the right things. You know, I got married, I live with my partner, I live with my my man, you know, we go to church on Sundays, we are good. Um, We don't need any of that stuff. Let's leave that stuff over there to all the sluts and the whores and the people who, you know. So unless we're beginning to have those open conversations that everything that we're talking about could affect all of us at any time, 
then we're missing out on, on having meaningful, explorative conversations. Because what I realize as a psychologist is that if people don't feel that they're a part of the, whatever the conversation is, they turn up. They, it doesn't register with them. Um, you know, it's not for me, it's for them. So even what you're saying about, you know, prep being, you know, more than just a pill, it's about your overall health. It's about, you know, you're taking this pill, but then depending on what your, your health status is, this might not be the right pill for you. This might cause adverse impact. You know, if you're taking this pill, then you shouldn't be on testosterone drug. You shouldn't be on any of those, you know, drug, the, those um, over-the-counter stuff you take to work out, to pump up and all this kind of stuff. It, it's a more of a health decision. But if someone doesn't feel like that applies to them, then you've missed them out on this conversation. So you, we can have all the healthy conversations we want. The people are going to be tuning out because it's just so much um, siloed into this one thing. And we need to think about it more broadly about how people think and feel about themselves and what they believe is, is for them or not for them. So I think, I think we, we, you know, we should just be having more conversations around the dinner table you know, when we go to our, you know, when we go to our, our church meetings, you know, when we're having our, <laughs> our, our walks at the park. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for having sexual conversations everywhere, you know, um, because the one thing I realize, and this might seem very rudimental, but, you know, we're all here because someone had sex, you know, our parents had sex. You know, so it's already ingrained in our DNA. Why deny that by saying, oh, it's something that other people are doing? We all do it. You know, we all think about it. We're all engaging in it. Maybe we engage in it differently, but it's something that we all engage in. So why not have that conversation openly? And I think once that gets started, then we can begin to have more of those whole holistic discussion as opposed to, oh, let me talk to you people because you people are at risk. So. Something coming, I made it out a while ago then, which is... How that summer I was coming here, Ed. Oh, well, I'm going to make it very clear. <laughs> make it very, very clear, okay? Now I'm going to leave no, none of the listeners <laughs> with their own pressure. The listeners, know you the listeners know you better than I do. <laughs> Either down the throat or from the neck down. And get <laughs> None in the hair, none in the face. That's the standard rule. Oh, really? So you're limiting this complaint? Well, I'm going to just work with them. I'm going to work with them. Listen, first of all, if come going there, I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and if you wash it out of your locks, it's also a problem. <laughs> I make a personal decision. Say, I right. But and that's your negotiating. Absolutely. So from <laughs> down or down the throat. But right. I first. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the point that I wanted to make is in your work, how do you, what are the strategies you think get people to a point where they're able to be open about sex in that way? How, what are some of the things that you recognize work to improve people's relationship with discussing sexuality since mm. it's so central? Um, so I think, in my, in my work, um, one of the things that I find very helpful is normalizing sex. 
it's um, it's talking about it in a very kind of matter of fact way. Um, you know, recognizing that even if people are uncomfortable about having those discussions, what you will find is if whomever they're talking to opens that gate, it almost gives them permission to be become more relaxed about it. Um, so I never shy away from sex. I never shy away from sex talk. And I always, I will be the one to lead people into that realm. And I think if, if you're in a position of having those discussions and you're shy about talking about it or even, you know, identifying what it is, then it doesn't actually open the gate for other people to feel comfortable. So but I would always lead by having, so when was the last time you had sex? Did you enjoy it? Who was it with? You know, what did you like most about it? And the more you open that up and then you can even say, well, this was my experience the last time, um, you know, I did it. Then it allows people to be more open. And sometimes in, in my work, and I work with young people a lot too. And they're like, oh my God, did he just say that? And you can see them kind of relaxing in their seat a little bit more because I said it first, you know, they're like, oh, okay, he's cool. I can talk about it. So helping people to relax is one of the things I think works for me in my, in my work. That's a lesson to the tops as well. Help your partner to relax. Right, exactly. You know, I kind of slipped that in there. <laughs> Don't be selfish as a top, you know? <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if this if, if this if this was Glenn's experience. I remember um, September when I would have um, landed in the UK. Um, the university would have, you know, would have done a, a, a number of tests, um, and I know they were offering sexual health tests, but that was an option. And I remember I had signed up to do it, um, and I got a, a male um, doctor. And for some reason, I don't know if it was because I was in the UK, he was asking me questions that if I was in Jamaica, I would have never answered um, <laughs> those questions. But I felt so comfortable um, telling him the answers. He, he, we went in details. It almost, felt, it almost felt like I was having a chat, chit chat with my best friend, telling him about you know experiences and all kind of things. And I feel like just my experience, personal experience with doctors here as I step in the room or just making up my mind to go to the doctor about a specific issue, I know there is some moral high ground in which they approach stuff. So I, I wouldn't want to say, okay, um, yes, I did this or yes, I did that. Or, okay, this is what is happening. You kind of, you, you, you kind of, you know, totally honest with them um, about a lot of things because you don't want that level of judgment um, about you or your sexual um, activities? I mean, for me, I mean, if I compare them, so what I didn't have that, that I did my school didn't do, and if them did enough emails, so I did send them ignore, so there's that. But um, what was liberating for me was self-testing and their system of self-testing because um, it made it so easy to engage with, and it wasn't just, oh, you test for HIV. I was testing for a range of sexual health issues and I was getting quick response. I was getting a relatively quick response on that. 
made me feel more comfortable with, you know, ordering it. It was free, you know. And when I did need to go in for treatment, because I'm not afraid to tell people I've had an STI before I say it on podcast, before I say it again. And I always remember the time. So funny enough. So I said this elsewhere. And I remember I came back to Jamaica and I said this. And I said, getting an STI is really no different from getting the flu. Mm-hmm. The workers in Jamaica could not believe I said it. The girls were gooped and gagged. And I said, well, baby, it went on to the same thing, right? You get sick and you start it out. And it is what it is. And so I think a lot of times when I go into certain healthcare spaces, if it's not with a service provider that I have a certain kind of established relationship with, I go in with the, the bad bitch armor so that right. I, so I let them know that, well, one, I know most things about my sexual health already. So the only thing I really need you here for is to tell me specifically what the issue is and specifically how we're going to respond to it. I don't need anything else from you. Um, And I think that helps me because I very much own whatever it is that my body is going through because it is my body and it's my responsibility. And a lot of people don't necessarily have that. Um, but I, this, there was a starkness in the experience because when I went for treatment in the UK, it was very, you know, it was a little flippant thing and it, it didn't feel like there was any moralizing about, you know, the fact that I had an STI versus, I mean, I think in Jamaica, he meant well, but his tone was just, you know, there was a sense of pity in his tone. Mm. And, and, and I know he, he didn't mean, he wasn't. He didn't mean so he meant well, but it you could tell the difference. Like if we could get to a place where, you know, STIs happen, like any yeah. types of illnesses, then you'd see a shift in how people feel like they can be honest and open in a particular space. But my bad girl from long time, so I just mm. imagine it to any any look at else things, but we'll cut it now. We'll come right my story for me. Good, good, good. But I think it's 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 cult it's cultural, isn't it? Jamaica is very judge. I mean, I think it's it's such a double standard because Jamaica is so open sexually. You know, you go to Pasa Pasa and everyone's winding up, and you go to Palisades and everyone's having sex on the stage, and you know. But there's still that other side where it's like, oh my god, you can't believe you're having sex outside of marriage. Can't believe. Look at what happened with the the um the the police officer last week that was, you know, finger licking good. <laughs> oh, but, um, but, you know, it's, I also think, Glenroy, what you mentioned was really important because I don't think a lot of people can advocate for themselves in the medical field. And what you just described was you being your own advocate and going in saying, I know what I want and I know exactly what I need from you. So many people don't know how to do that. So they go in saying the doctor is the expert and I'm just this woeful soul that's here to, to be told or to be preached to or to be judged by you and I'm just gonna accept it. So I think one of the things that we can do with your, with your platform is to begin to empower people to be self-advocates, to advocate for themselves in medical spaces, to advocate for themselves in social spaces, to educate themselves on what they need to do when they go into these spaces. Because, of course, we all know doctors are not experts in your body. They might be experts in a particular field, 
but they're not experts of you and you are your own expert. So when you go into those spaces, you have to come into it with a sense of, I know what's going on with me. I just need you to guide me in this way. And I don't need to feel your pity. I don't need to feel your shame. I don't need to feel your guilt. Whatever it is that made you the way you are, that's your business. And I don't want to know about it. Uh, so that's self-advocacy that I think so many people don't have. That's all like one project. Write that down, man. I'll <laughs> 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 project them one after the right? <laughs> Um, okay, so if, if Lando, Lando, do you have any other question? Oh, no, you can go ahead. No, so I was wondering, um, maybe you could just share with the listeners a little bit, um, as we in our last about 10 minutes, like what was your own like journey to, um, you know, getting to that space where one, you feel the way you feel about sex comfortably. And then also then get into the field because I feel like a lot of times we go into fields and then when we decide to take on very specific niches within particular fields, you kind of have to have a certain sense of self already. So like, for example, you know, I study law, but I'm very interested in LGBT rights within the context of law. And so I, I, I go into that area, which is very niche and not a lot of people are there. So what was that like for you, uh, Michelle? Thank you, Glenn Roy. I feel like I'm having an interview with Oprah right now. <laughs> um, no, uh, it's actually interesting because, as, as you know, I, I spent the first 15 years of my life in Jamaica. I grew up, um, you know, in Jamaica in the 80s and, and, and the first five years of the 90s. Um, and I have always been very interested in people. So I was always interested in people. I was always interested in why people do the things they do. Um, and my experience in Jamaica is not, it wasn't one of shame or guilt. You know, I grew up in a very liberal household where my mom and my grandma and my aunt and my uncles, and my granddad always encouraged us to be ourselves. They always encourage us to be, you know, exactly who we are. So I never felt shamed about being different, you know, when my brothers and my cousins were running around playing football or whatever else, I was in the kitchen with my grandma. I wanted to, to be with her. So I was learning to cook and clean. Um, so I was very different from my other sibling, my other brothers and cousins, even my sister, because she was a bit of a tomboy. Um, but I was always, that was always something that I was encouraged to be. I never felt shame. You know, I see other kids and people, you know, their parents or their, 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 their elders say, oh, you should be doing this because you're a boy or you should be doing this because you're a girl. I never experienced that. So that was my first sense of liberation. And then moving to London, which was a bit of a culture shock at 15, um, I just got into a space where I became very involved in, you know, kind of openness, open spaces, open mindedness. I, you know, I, was, I, was, um, I went into fashion as I was working you know, with models and stylists and, you know, in that field, everyone's kind of more accepted as being an individual. So I felt very comfortable 
when I decided to go to university, I knew I wanted to study psychology because I was just like, I'm too interested in people's minds. I need to know for real how this works. So I studied psychology and then um, in my master's, I did counseling theories because I wanted to become a therapist, but I didn't know I wanted to specialize in sex and relationships until I started doing that. So as I was studying, um, you know, counseling therapies, I was just like, I don't want to be a bog standard counselor. I don't want to be like all the basic counselors. I want to do something that's more meaningful, more helpful. And at that point, I merged my sense of self and self, self-identity where I felt very liberated. I didn't have any hang-ups. I didn't feel any guilt around sex or sexuality. So I was like, how great would, I, would that be if I was able to help people to feel the same way I feel about sex? And that's when I decided I was going to specialize in psychosexual therapy and couples counseling came after that. But I, my journey is very different from almost everyone else I know who, um, who's a black gay man, um, you know, very different because I, I didn't feel any sense of low self-worth for being gay. Um, I didn't get, I didn't learn to, I didn't know that being gay was, was, was anything other than just being amazing. So when I tell people this all the time, I was like, what? Like, but then I saw, I saw it as I, as I grew up, I saw that other gay men didn't have the same experiences. I saw that people were shamed and guilt into their sexuality. I I saw that they weren't comfortable being open. And I just knew that wasn't, that wasn't my experience. So, um, and I think it really made me a bit person um you know that's where a lot of my confidence came from but it also made me a better therapist because I was able to empathize um not just with the person in front of me but also with the history they come with um you know so that that's my that's been my journey my experience nice um something else did come up when I'm at the running joke (laughs) Um, <laughs> but Lando, go ahead because it kind of escaped because, yeah. Yeah, I think too much. All right. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> what do you mean, girl? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, 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 could, I could chat with you guys for, forever. It's just such an easy conversation. I'm sure, you know, I haven't listened to any of the other episodes, but I'm 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 definitely gonna go back and listen more now to see if you had as much fun with everyone else as you did with me. Oh, I mean, we're fun people, but you was really easy to talk to. I ain't gonna lie. It was real nice. I guess the last thing I wanted to know is that so like in your work, um, what are some of like the the issues um broadly that you see? Um well one, how often do black women access? These kind because of, you're talking about the intersection of sexual health and mental health in a way. Mm-hmm. We know that our communities we're definitely we're, uh, we're we're hardly accessing one or the other or both of them. Right. <laughs> and then you know what are some of like the major issues that you see coming up in the way you're doing your work because you know on the advocacy side you know we're doing our own research now into mental health and seeing the kind of stuff that we need to be doing and advocating for. So it'd be kind of interesting to hear. From your perspective as someone who's, you know, lived and worked in the UK, lived and worked in the US, what those, you know, similarities yeah. are. Yeah. Um, so I want to answer that in three, three separate parts. Um, and forgive me if I, if I take too long. But um, the first part is 
you're absolutely right. A lot of times men, gay men, black men don't access support for either of those. So in my field, I get to see them access them both. They get to access social health, uh, mental health and sexual health, um, which is great to see. So that's the first answer. The second answer is we have, I'm going to speak specifically to the case of black gay men. Our whole history has been pathologized. Um, you know, so we have innate sense of something being wrong with us from the gate. So that's something that we, we always have to get over. So that causes a barrier um, as far as mental health concerns. That is an unresolved issue that we have to deal with um, as black gay men. So whether you suffer from depression, anxiety, suicide, any of those things that are diagnosable, we have to think about the unresolved issues of growing up being black and gay. Mentally, that affects us, whether we know it or not. And that's how we kind of enter into the world. So I like to, 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 to start by saying we all need some external help. We all need to go through hearing people talk bad about us, even if it's not to us personally, talk bad about someone who's gay and who's black and how that has impacted our mental health. Um, so... And then other, the other than that, everything we've been talking about for the last um, hour is about how sexual health has really impacted our, our pleasures and how it's impacted the way we, we, we kind of strategize how we engage in sex. So in my work, I see, especially in the last year with COVID, I see a lot more Black men coming in seeking mental health. I think COVID really exposed um, the inadequacies that we felt um, you know, being isolated really helped people to or, or forced people to recognize what they, what they were lacking, um, you know, and how they deal with themselves when, they, when they're forced to be by themselves. So it, it's opened the gates up to people seeking mental health in lots of ways. But also it's actually exposed what their sexual health needs are and what their sexual health is and how they think about sex. You know, if you're used to going to a bar and picking someone up, you know, on a Friday night and now all the bars are closed, you can't do that anymore. You're like, oh God, was I was I addicted to sex? Was that what, what I was doing all these years? And you no, know, so it kind of forces us to think about what our sexual health needs are and what our mental health needs are. So I see a lot of people coming into therapy now, um, just kind of asking for help, looking for support, recognizing that there's a need, recognizing perhaps that there were some unresolved issues from childhood that they'd been buried. Um, deep um, for years and I see that they're much more open now than they are and I think the other the other thing I want to say to that is being a black male clinician really helps people to feel comfortable for a long time I know when I was in um, I was studying to be a therapist I didn't see any black male therapists you know everyone that I worked with everyone I associated with everyone I learned from were females and a few maybe black females. So I know that, you know, representation really does matter in mental health and in sexual health. You want to see someone who at least in your mind, you perceive, understand where you're coming from, you know, and understand what your experiences are. So whether or not I understand it, 
it's the perception that counts. So them seeing me in the seat that I'm sitting allows them to feel more comfortable saying, actually, maybe I can talk to him. Maybe I can open up to him. Maybe I can deal with this thing that I've been suppressing for all these years. So I've seen an explosion in, in, in people coming into therapy and I welcome it. And I think it's very, very important as Black gay men that we do heal from the societal damage that we've had to deal with, the historical damage that we had to deal with, and the cultural facts that are just there. You know, for a long time, being gay was like a diagnosable illness. You know, that doesn't just go away because now we have gay rights and, and, and people can get married. There's still a historical context to that. Um, so I think it's very important for us to deal with them, whether it's with a therapist, with a social group, with listening to podcasts or whatever it is. I think it's we have to acknowledge that there are the, these um, nuances that we can't just ignore just because we have great jobs and we have a, a presence in, in, in the world and on TV. I mean, I love the way that you ended that, which is um, legal solutions don't fix social problems. And I, I always tell people that in doing my master's in law, it pushed me as far away from legal solutions as possible. It was the funniest thing. Every little paper I did, it was like, well, I won't solve this. I mean, it will, it will help it to a point. So, I mean, that resonates with me so well. So thank you for that. And thank you for everything you said. Um, but my woman Lanville finish up because I feel healthy episode. I'm a bit fishy after this. I think actually I, I could just um I was just getting about to get started because when you when you touch on mental health, that is kind of mine. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the word that beam. Um yeah, I've worked with beam before. I, 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 I love the work that um beam does. Um, but I, I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to, um, chat with you, as I said, um, the whole issue of, um, condomless sex has been something that I've been very, um, interested in, um, just on the, the fact that we don't talk about it enough and our interventions don't seem to want to go in, in the way of, okay, our ABC method has not been working. So let's um address the issues that we haven't been addressing um so thank you very much uh, michelle for joining us uh sure we'll have a, a follow-up or will you you will help um us in the work that we're doing um because i'm sure a lot of things have come out of this um glenroy will want to um explore <laughs> and i'll have to be there <laughs> So I do, I do look forward to um, chatting with you um, again and just helping us. Um, as as Glenroy said, we've done work. We we did a recent study on improving mental health for um, LGBT Jamaicans. I think is one of the first studies that would have been done specific to the population. Uh, a number of things came out of that study, um, and it would kind of be good to kind of you. Having been born in Jamaica and understanding the Jamaican context and also understanding best practices being done in the US and UK, um, your work could inform what we do here also. So thank you again. It was it was such a pleasure being with you guys. You know, um, I, I I think I said before, uh, whatever I can do to, to, to impact um, positively back home is very, very important to me. 
and you guys are just doing amazing, amazing work, um, which I just cannot say enough about being so young and just so full of, of change and motivation. It, it excites me. Um, so to be here with you guys and, and to listen in, I'm, I'm a fan, um, also an advocate. And like I said, whatever you need from me, I might be a fun boy. And maybe a plain guy. <laughs> Wait, what was that? Maybe a little bit of who? Uh, maybe a plane ride. Oh, hey. <laughs> listen up now. <laughs> All right. So, just to say to the listeners, we hope you had as much fun and were as educated. The fish tea didn't nice episode. They're nice and nourishing and honest and stuff. And I have some follow up questions for Landon that I go ask after the year because you think so, you sneaky. Yeah, I didn't use Sneaky One for the podcast, you know. I have to talk to you, but not for right now, because, you know, time is up. So, as usual, you can reach out to us at Fish Tea Podcast on our socials, on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. Um, that's at Fish Tea Podcast with your feedback, your comments, your questions, your queries, your concerns, anything. You can also, if you want to do it, you know, more anonymously, although, okay, this email is a little bit more anonymously, you can create one. But anyways, fishtpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can almost also email us your suggestions and your, your comments and feedback as well. Um, the cases are going up, social distance, down the line for the vaccination, and that becomes a thing. Wipe it off before you put it in your mouth. And as I always say, stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>